what was the sound that we heard echo through the house as mom had had enough? There's always that magical number of requests and questions and runny noses. And at some point, it switches. And mom is no longer super mom. She's had enough. I thought of that this morning as I was looking at the text because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of imperative here in Micah, isn't there? There's a lot of imperative. There's a lot of this is what we ought to be doing. So I want you to hear this morning, this sermon, not as one simply laying on you more oughtness, more of what you ought to be doing. Now, actually, what I want to do this day is I want to take some time to look specifically at Micah's response to all that he has seen, all that he has experienced. But in order for Micah's response to be something that we can talk about, I thought I would share this. I want you to imagine for just a moment that great Disney classic, 101 Dalmatians, the animated version. Everybody got it? Okay, who is the main villainess in the movie? Do you remember? Cruella de Vil, right? I want you to see her face, that hair, that car, those white knuckles. And I want you to see that superimposed with this caption that I saw on social media. Over the image, someone had typed this. Me, trying to excel in my career, maintain a social life, drink enough water, exercise, text everyone back, stay sane, survive, and be happy. Got the picture? Beneath the image were countless numbers of people sharing it, agreeing with it, affirming themselves, saying it's like looking at myself in a mirror. It's something we all feel, isn't it? There's something unique about the present day and age in which we live, where we feel, we can identify with that picture of life, rattling on and us holding on by a thread. You see, that's the the difficulty when it comes to engaging with this text and the subject that we're going to talk about this morning, is it? Because the relentless pressure that we feel to be enough 
I mean, that's just with our own lives. Now we're talking about we're supposed to be observing the plight of everyone else's lives and feel something for that as well. But how is that possible when I'm barely holding on? Do you feel it? Do you feel the tension? Do you feel the stress of how do you do it all? How do you keep it together, hold it together? When you're not enough for you, how could you possibly be enough for anyone else? This is what Micah was faced with, and I want you to see how he reacted to all that was going on around him. How does he respond to all that he has seen and heard and experienced? We're just going to read the first seven verses today of Micah chapter 7. So let me invite you to stand. I want you to hear God's word. Micah says in chapter 7, verse 1, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the door of your mouth for her, from her who lies in your arms." For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you allow us, we pray, to be still, to know that you are God, and in the stillness would we hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. Our desire is to see Jesus and him only. We pray that you would forgive the one who preaches his sins, for they are many. Would you shoot a straight shot with a crooked arrow such as me? For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. This morning I want to explore, I want to honestly assess where it is that God 
has us, what it is, in fact, that we are seeing in the text. And then I want us to be able to have hope in our lament. For my young listeners, or maybe my young at heart listeners, I want you to listen for stories about people on a conveyor belt. I want you to listen to a crazy Christmas letter. And then I want you to listen for a time where God was silent. First thing I want to look at is being able to honestly assess what we're seeing. So Micah, Micah looks around and he assesses his world and he responds. How does the text say that Micah responds? In chapter, uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, um, Micah responds with this. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. This is Micah entering into the ancient way of lament and making his complaint known to God. So to lament in the biblical sense is not to pick up our uh, newspaper or observe on our television or the screens that we hold in our hands the most recent crisis, the most recent headline that has come across and cluck our tongues and say what a terrible world it has become. To lament is not to simply wish for the good old days when things seemed a little lighter and a little easier. And to lament is not to have a pity party. It's not to say, woe is me, in the most cartoonish of ways. No, the ancient practice of lament is to go before God and to uh, passionately express our grief and our sorrow. It is to mourn. It is to grieve. It is to beat one's chest in angst. Micah says, woe is me. This is a, a powerful phrase in the Bible because it conveys an entrance into a formal season of lament. In Scripture, woe is me is the only phrase that is appropriate for the most dire of circumstances, whether it be the the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse or expressing sorrow over the plight of a conquered nation. Woe is me is is the signal of of a time where we go into a most pronounced period of mourning and searching. In this verse, we see agricultural imagery being used to convey the point. Look at what it says. For I have become... As when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. All of the vines have been picked clean 
as the vine dresser goes out to enjoy the harvest. There's no fruit to eat. So what drew Micah to this type of image? What drew him to frame his lament in this way? Look at verse 3. Their hands are on what is evil and do what is evil as well. The people of God are being picked clean, just like the vine. The people of God are being picked clean, just like the vine. To lament is not to search for answers, but it is to wait on God himself. And this is how Micah feels. He is so sad, so empty, so brokenhearted. Why? Because there is no recourse for him unless God shows up. There's no way for him to deal with what's going on around him except for him to sit before the Lord, before the face of God, and cry out in sorrow. Now, this seems foreign to us. I know I've mentioned this before. Dr. Chuck DeGroat said one time that we live in a Kleenex culture. At the first sign of a tear, the Kleenex comes out to wipe it away. And look, I get this. The other night, my daughter, who was going on um, some insane number of hours of being awake because she decided in her infinite wisdom that she didn't need to take a nap. At dinner, there was a consequence for her repeated disobedience. And it wasn't just repeated disobedience. It was she knew she was doing it. She smiled and said, no, daddy, and then did it again. She's a ride an hour. <laughs> there was a consequence for those actions. And then the head went down. The mouth got very low. And Jen looked at me and she said, you better make this right. <laughs> so I pick her up. I carry her over to the chair and I sit down. She's got her head on my shoulder and I'm rocking her and telling her that daddy loves her, but she can't be disobedient like that. When she picks her head up, there are those big fat tears not the skinny ones that happen when you're trying to force tears out. The big fat tears that come when you're trying to hold tears back. And I wanted to buy her ice cream. <laughs> I don't like those tears. We don't know what to do with sadness, do we? What's interesting is that if you look at the 150 psalms that are given to us in the Psalter, did you know that, over, that close to 40% of the psalms given to us in the Psalter are classified in some way, shape, or form as a psalm of lament? 
you see this practice of tears that have no answer and cries that have no salve. This practice is not only healthy, but it's biblical and it's necessary. And it's the grace of God that he would actually enter in and not just welcome our tears, but give us a script in holy word to go before him and cry out to him with. What does this tell us? What does this tell us about how God wants us to engage with the world? Listen to this. It tells us that God wants us to engage with the world deeply and meaningfully rather than shallowly or superficially. He wants us to draw near to the brokenness of the world and our own hearts just as he has done with us. But there's, there's, just, there's just so much. There's too much. Some have said that we're living in this golden age of entertainment right now where if you look anywhere, you'll find some new something for your attention. I've had to now go in and make it a discipline to turn off almost all the notifications on my phone because I just can't take another breaking news headline. There's something always vying for our attention, and it's just so much. How can we go and enter the world and draw near to it in anything other way, in any other way other than shallowly, if we're going to protect our own hearts? As Stephen Covey once said, when everything's urgent, nothing is. And this this tyranny of the urgent, this everything is a breaking this and an urgent update that, that's where the numbness sets in, doesn't it? That's where the numbness sets in. Numbness to the noise and numbness to the cries and numbness to the tragedy. It's so much all at once that we can feel numb. In the great Pixar film, I'm on a Disney kick today, on, in the great Pixar film, WALL-E, do you remember how humanity was kept placated? On conveyor belts. They were so obese so sedentary that they were put on conveyor belts with screens always in front of them to keep them mindless and happy and numb. Scripture gives us a very different picture. In order to create space for us to feel, first, we must actually intentionally create space 
to feel and then participate in the uh, in no longer being numb, but actually starting to feel the sadness and the emptiness of the world that is around us. But I have one more question before we really explore some of the things that made Micah really sad, and that is this. Because for some of us in here, the reason uh, that lament is not a part of your lives, as I've already mentioned, is because we're, we're numb. There's just no space or time. Or it's too uncomfortable to engage. But there, there may be another aspect. It may be that we've used up all of our tears on ourselves. Let me ask you this. What are the things that you and I, if we are going to lament, are the things that we're going to lament over? Think about it. They may be good things, by the way. Appropriate things, even. It may be the the sudden and untimely death of a family member. It may be the uh, tragic illness that strikes your family or some sort of uh, natural or man-made disaster that wreaks havoc upon your world. But, But what are the other things that may cause you and I to lament? The things that would require, that would call us to go, woe is me. Those may be things that reveal uncomfortable truths about our hearts mightn't it? Like if our retirement doesn't go according to plan or our family vacation is ruined or if our kids make a poor life decision or if rush hour just won't let us get where we want to go on time. You see, It might be if your career didn't advance the way you thought it ought to, or your marriage didn't end up quite as you thought it might. What are the things that cause you to cry out in woe? Where do our cries end and our numbness begin? See, I'm not asking you to do one more thing. I'm asking you, are you doing so many things that there's no you left to engage in the important things? What are the things that caused Micah to lament? There's three of them. I'll cover them quickly. Here's the first one. Because all of them have this in common. All of them have the glory of God and the good of others at their heart. So first, what's the first thing that causes Micah to lament? Micah grieves, Micah laments because of the disappearance of the righteous. Look at verse two, you with me? Look at verse two. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. So Micah is seeing here that there is no, uh, when, when Micah said that there was no fruit of the harvest that his soul desired, hence his lament, one of the things that he desired was this, to see righteousness around him. And it was nowhere to be found. 
And if we look further in the text, it wasn't just that righteousness was nowhere to be found, but there was another characteristic that was found in abundance in righteousness's place. It was fruitlessness. Look at verse 4. The best of them is like a briar. (laughs) The most upright of them a thorn hedge. That's fruitlessness. That's not righteousness. It's been said that the Bible represents how the world is designed to operate and that we ignore the Bible at our own peril. Or to put it another way, we could say this. When we align ourselves with God's desires, when we align ourselves with God's desires, this is when communities around us begin to flourish. They begin to thrive. This is when power is used in godly and right ways. If you remember back in Micah chapter 3, when we talked about power. It's what gave the peace and love movement such um, stickiness. That and it was hot out and it was the 70s and people were sweating a lot. But Peace and love is a lot more attractive than blood and killing. Even if it ends up still being just as empty. It doesn't take a Christian to see that people loving each other is better than people hating one another. When whole communities start to say, my life for yours, rather than your life for mine, we begin to see, in general senses, a picture of the way things were really meant to be, the way things really ought to be. But what Micah is seeing instead is a whole lot of nastiness going on. In verse 2, it talks about how people are preying on one another. People are warring against one another. Your life for mine, I will expend you in order to enrich me. Because they had forgotten God. Society has begun to break down. But there's yet another reason for Micah's lament. Micah grieves, secondly, because of the breakdown and corruption of leaders and the societal structures that were supposed to keep peace in the first place. Look at verse 3. There are three types of leaders, three types of leadership who had been given responsibility of using their authority in order to care for people that God had entrusted to their hands. You had um, a prince, a judge, and the affluent, a great man. Those are the three that you see in the text that had been given specific responsibility to attend to the vulnerable in their community and to use their power and position towards those ends. And what's happened? They are weaving, but instead of being uh, weavers of peace in and for their community, they are weaving obstruction of justice. They're, They're still weaving, but what's being woven is evil. The best of the leaders, if you could say there was a best of the leaders, is like a briar or a thorn hedge. 
Corrupt leadership is an occasion for grief. It is an occasion for lament. Remember, as we talked about last week, justice is not simply um, punishing those who have done wrong, but justice in the biblical sense is also working towards setting those who are weak and vulnerable to rights, to fulfill what is lacking for them. It's in this fully orbed sense of justice that we find cause for our own lament today. How are we doing as a church, not just advocating that the wicked go punished, but that the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized are set uh, securely within the embrace of God's abiding love? Here's the third reason that Micah grieves, and this is what I'm calling the the tearing of the social fabric. Look at verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, you have the complete breakdown of society. You have the complete breakdown of society. It's a complete social unraveling. Neighbors can't be trusted. Friends are unworthy of confidence. The family is a disaster. Spouses are emotionally estranged from one another. Sons line up against fathers. Daughters rebel against their mothers. Everyone has sought to do what was right in their own eyes. And it's every man and every woman for themselves. Now, and again, it's important to note, these are things that break God's heart. In turn, we ought to ask, are these things that break our hearts as well? Have we created space to allow our hearts to be broken over these things? Have we aligned our hearts with God's heart in such a way that we are brokenhearted as well? Or have we used up our tears and our reserves only for things that inconvenience us or thwart our plans and purposes for a good life? I read some of the work this week of University of North Dakota researcher Ann Burnett who has spent a lot of time collecting and analyzing, wait for it, American Christmas letters. Why would I spend time researching American Christmas letters? Because they're telling. They're telling. Her findings are sadly predictable. Among the five decades worth of Christmas letters in her archive, those from recent years focus far less on giving thanks. They focus far less on forecasting the future and much more on how jam-packed the preceding months have been. She cites one particularly vivid example in which the mother writes this in her Christmas letter. She says, I'm not sure whether writing a Christmas letter when I'm working at the speed of light is a good idea, but given the amount of time I have to devote to any single project, it's the only choice I have. We, our family, start every day at 4.45 a.m., launch ourselves through the day at breakneck speed, only to land in a crumpled heap at 8.30 p.m., wondering how we made it through the day. You feel her exhaustion, and it's just one example. How can we take it all in 
if everyone is expecting everything from us every moment of every day? How do we have the space left to be brokenhearted when we're so numb, we're not sure if we can feel our own hearts? That's where the second part comes in, and it's crucial. How do we have hope in lament? How does Micah respond after he has allowed his heart to break over the things that are most lamentable to God and to him? Look at verse 7. In his lament, he hopes. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I, will, I wait for the God of my salvation My God will hear me. Dear friends, listen. This is what it means to lament. In lament, we see and observe. We allow our hearts to break, but then instead of going numb or trying to patch up our hearts with insufficient fixes, we look. We look to God and know that he both sees us and he hears us. So Micah saw and observed. What's the second thing that he did? He allowed his heart to be still. Our cries and our laments are not launched into nothing, but are heard by the God of heaven and earth. And because of his great, tender, fatherly love, we can wait because we know we have been heard. And this leads us to the third aspect of lament. The third and the most difficult aspect of lament is that he trusts. We trust that because we have been, uh, that because we have brought our hearts to God, because we have decided that we will not be satisfied with anything else or anything less than God himself, we will trust. We will refuse the allure of other idols and lesser pursuits. We will not permit ourselves to be dulled and dumbed by food or drink or sex or distraction. We will wait patiently and we will trust. Michael here looks and waits and trusts. We know This is the biblical model of lament because we see it over and over and over again. We see it through the pen of the poets in the Psalms. We hear it through the cries of the prophets, just like we're hearing it from Micah here. And we know that Micah was not the last prophet because there was a greater prophet yet to come who would also see Jerusalem and also cry out and weep in lament. In Hebrews 5, 7, we see that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus looked, Jesus waited, and Jesus trusted. We hear the most poignant and powerful cry of Jesus' lament on the cross where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out for the nearness, nearness and the presence of God, but the presence of God was not to be had by Christ in that moment. Because Jesus experienced in reality what you and I 
fear happens all the time in theory. We cry out and we don't see the heavens moving and changing and therefore we presume that God has grown distant or disinterested in us. But Jesus, the one who helped to form the heavens, cried out to God and there was no answer, just deafening silence. At the cross, we see Jesus waiting and trusting and dying. But dear friends, listen. Listen. It is because of this bloody tree and because of an empty tomb with its stone rolled back and grave clothes folded and placed neatly, and the angel saying he is not here because he is risen. It is because of that that we know that our cries will never go unheard, never go unanswered, never go undealt with because Jesus has endured the absence and the loss and the silence that we deserved, and we get instead the attention, the adoration, and the love that was due to him because he was the perfect spotless son of God. It is because of Christ's death and his substitution on our behalf that we know that every single cry and every single prayer is heard and attended to because our father has never once turned his back on us. Because God rejected Jesus. We can know that God will never reject us. Jesus' prayer for the Father's nearness was rejected so that we can know that our prayers will be heard and heeded. Now, friends, listen. If I'm going to throw my back out again preaching a sermon, you better listen. I don't say all of this so that we can breathe a sanctified sigh of relief. It's not less than that. But I say this because the gospel is the fire. It's the only source of heat that can melt our ingrown, hardened hearts because Jesus was willing to move towards us and die for us to be forsaken and abandoned by God for us. We can slow down. We can wait. We can look. We can process. We can lament. We can lament in confident sadness knowing that our prayers will be heard because Jesus' prayers were were not heard on that cross. The cross is not merely a place of substitution and satisfaction for the judgment of God, but also the place that we can go to find courage to have our hearts broken for the sadness all around us. So let me ask you this. When sadness breaks over you, When sadness breaks over you, what do you do? What do you look to? When you see the stuff all around you in the world, do you look to elected leaders? 
or shake your fist at those causing the harm? Do you look to entertainment or busyness to fill up your life and your mind so that you don't have to see what's going on? Or maybe that's a better question for the second point. How do you do with waiting? How do you do with waiting? What do you do with all of the idle time? Or at least what feels like idle time? What are the deepest things that you're waiting on God to hear you regarding? When you play them back in your mind, how many of them serve interests other than your own? All the stuff that you're waiting on God to hear you for. How many of those things serve interests other than your own? What are you trusting God to do? Are you trusting him to act at all? Do you believe, do you know that the most incredible thing that God has given the church access to is the throne of grace? And are we as a church praying together that God would rise up and do only that which he can do? Not just bring revival so that our worlds would be easier, but bring revival so that we would see all of the ransom, the blood-bought saints of the Lamb brought near by the power of Christ so that we would begin to see in part what we will one day experience in full. Do you believe, do you know at the deepest levels of your heart that Micah 7-7 is not just good theology, but is in fact the very bedrock of your entire existence, that because of Christ, you can look to the Lord, you can wait for the God of your salvation, and you can know that your God will hear you. Christ endured silence so that we and all of the ransomed creation along with us might enjoy fullness. You can let the world break your heart because it broke God's too, and Christ is putting it all back together. Do you believe that? Do 